0: hey folks this is kevin on this episode you'll hear brian sermo i
1: know it's really debaucherous for a lot of people but it was it was what we had it's all we had to do we went out looking you know it was like either starve or go hunt so we went hunting that and more. But before that, I just wanted
0: to say, you know, guys, Chris Castiglione is a very good friend of our show. He's done lots of great work for the RISC team. He even created our website at risk-show.com. But even I was surprised to learn that Chris taught himself how to code. He went through lots of dense and abstract instruction manuals, and bit by bit, he got it down to a science. But he knew there had to be a much much more user-friendly way of teaching people HTML. So he's developed a super popular class now called One Month HTML that'll teach you how to code in less than a month. Don't forget, coding is one of the most sought-after job skills. Everyone needs websites, and being able to do this stuff yourself, that is invaluable. This class, One Month HTML, is the easiest way to learn how. You'll build an actual website. You'll be welcomed into a community of over 12,000 other students. There's hours of easy-to-follow video tutorials, hands-on exercises and training. And if you get stuck, there's always a real human being there to help you out. Listen, Risk fans have been emailing us to say they love this deal and they love the course. You can enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk. Enrollment is usually $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining and you'll be helping to support Risk. Again, it's one month HTML, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll be able to code HTML and CSS on your own at com slash risk. Now here's the show. No, kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Lee Rosevier behind me now, and we're calling today's episode Seedy. That's right, these are stories of scumbags and low lives. Oh. The people on today's show are very, very nice, but these are stories of being out there in the concrete jungle, where goons and thugs are packing heat, lest they land in the can. In just a bit, we're going to hear from Jake Hart, a prominent storyteller on the New York City scene these past several years. But before that... We're going to go back in our archives to a show we did in Albany a couple years back. And now that I think of it, wasn't that movie Ironweed with uh, Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep playing a couple of homeless folks? That was set right up there around in that Albany and Utica part of New York. And so here to take us back there now is Brian Sermo with a story we call The Blob Mob.
1: My story takes place uh, in the late 90s in downtown Utica, which was my hometown. It was the day before the eve I left for college, so it was my last day in town, and all my friends wanted to take me out for a night on the town. For anyone that's never been to downtown Utica during the late 90s, it was a pretty dismal place. Um, It was filled with vacant buildings I think like maybe one or two little eateries that weren't great, a couple dive bars, and the rest of downtown was filled with either thrift stores, like antique shops, or strip joints. We actually had this great museum, but no one even knew it existed. It's like this great museum in downtown Utica, but no one really went there. I always like to say that if you're in the market for like a lap dance and an antique table lamp, like... (laughs) That's the place to go, like downtown Utica in the late '90s. So around this time, my friends that are going to pick me up and go downtown—these are friends I grew up with. We all grew up on the same block. They're the kind of friends that you you have. Most people have that. They are the friends that provide the stories that you will tell for the rest of your life whenever you meet new friends. Needless to say, they're they're pretty special guys to me, and, and you know we're still very close. Uh, we all grew up on the same block. We spent. All our time together, we did the typical kid things, you know. We played street hockey, played basketball, we played cards. All summer long, we used to have these campouts in each other's backyard. We would talk about cars and, uh, you know, sports and just whatever we want to talk about. As we started getting older, the conversation obviously started to change. And it moved to, like, girls and sex, which is pretty normal. This is where the big like pothole in the road comes along, because we were not the most attractive looking group of guys. Right? Not one of us was under 225 pounds. <laughs> right? We were really rough around the edges. We were known, affectionately known, as the Blob Mob amongst other groups of friends. Uh, and, you know, and this just the way it was. So, you know, needless to say, we weren't getting much action in high school, okay? And I would actually like to thank all the, the women in the audience right now who gave the fat guy or the nerdy guy or the quiet guy a little action in high school, okay? Because it, it really makes all the difference. Okay? They, should, they should really... They should really put your picture on money. You know, that's, that's, that's how important it is. All right? So, so where do you go? You know, you're, you're, you're learning everything about yourself at this stage in your life. Um, you know, how do you know where you politically stand? Well, you have to have these political experiences. You have to talk to people and meet people. How do you know spiritually where you stand? Well, you have to talk to people and meet people and try different things. Well, the same thing sexually. It's, you need these experiences. And if you're not getting them you have to go and find them. So our junior and senior year of high school, we discovered, or rediscovered, downtown Unica. And I'm sorry to say, we didn't, we didn't discover the art museum yet. We discovered, we discovered the strip joints. All right? um, and if anyone's never been to a strip club, it's, it's like a carnival. I mean, remember when you were a kid, and you would go to the carnival, and you were just like, wow, it, it, there's lights... And there's a lot of sparkling things. There's some costumes, you know. There's like like this black catwalk, and and it's got you know stools around it, and you sit down. The only difference is it's like a lot more money for the rides. You know, that's that's the only thing. That's the only difference with the strip joints. So this is it, man. This is what we're gonna do. We've been doing this. This is where we go. Friends are picking me up at nine o'clock. I'm leaving for college tomorrow. We're going to the strip club So they pick me up We go to the strip club We get in there And you know we sit at the little chairs That are at the stage And you have to kind of lean forward Because the dancers come And they squat down And they'll put their boobs in your face But if you're too far from the stage Then they can't reach you So you really gotta You gotta lean forward So So the problem with this is the inner me which is totally aroused because there's a naked woman with her boobs in your face and it's like the greatest thing but then there's that other part of your brain I call it my I was raised Catholic part of my brain no and my I raised Catholic part of my brain doesn't just work in emotions like shame and guilt but also works in images And the image I have is, unfortunately, my mother and grandmother's face. So you can understand my situation here. To have boobs in your face and your mother and your grandmother's face image in your brain, it's a scary thing, you know? So you have to go back time and time again to the strip club to get used to, you know, fighting off that side of your brain. So eventually, you can enjoy it. <laughs> and this was our education. This is how we're gonna figure out what it's like to touch a woman, to smell a woman, to see what it's like, you know. And you always got that one friend, my one friend. I'm not gonna say his name because I don't wanna. He's got kids now, you know. You don't wanna do that. <laughs> but uh, he's the delusional friend that everyone has. He, like, he totally forgot that we're paying women to put their boobs in our face. He's like. They are in love with me, dude. They just <laughs> Mandy wants me, dude. She wants me. No, Dana wants you, man. She wants me so bad. And you have to remind them that you just paid them $50 to touch your penis. He doesn't, he doesn't understand it. So that's another thing we discovered, that the deeper you dug into your pocket for the larger bills, the, the strippers would follow, and the whole game changed. It was no longer sitting at... The catwalk, leaning forward, it was like they bring you into the VIP room. Whole different world. And, you know, I know it's really debaucherous for a lot of people, but it was was what we had. It's all we had to do. We went out looking, you know. It was like either starve or go hunt. So we went hunting. So this is it. This is my last night in town at the strip club. All there all night, having a great time. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. We leave the strip club. And we're all, we're all pumped. Man. we got testosterones going. We were with women all night. It doesn't matter that we pay them. We were with women. You know? And this night's just beginning. Our plan is now to leave the strip club and go to an after-hours breakfast place called Little Louie's. And anyone that's listening to this in Utica, if you were in high school around the late 90s, you know Little Louise. It is the biggest, shittiest hole in the wall. And the best thing he had were home fries with cheddar cheese. And he would literally take the bucket of cheddar cheese, it was just in a can actually, and he would open up the top and he'd put the can on the grill so it really liquefied. And then he'd give you a shitload of home fries and he'd pour this plastic looking yellow cheese on top and that's what you ate. And it was great. This is how we got to be the blob mob in many ways. (laughs) So, So this is our plan. We're leaving the strip club. We're going to go get something to eat. The night is still young. We had this little game we used to play with each other. And the game was, if there was five of us, four people were in on it, and one person was the butt of the joke. I'm leaving for college. It's my turn to be the butt of the joke. So this is what would happen. These guys would, like, talk about it beforehand. We leave the club. Four guys take off running as fast as the blob mob can run, which isn't very fast. (laughs) But if you're running away from another blob mob, you're okay. You're okay. You're, you're, you got a good head lead. So four guys run off. They jump in the car and they take off, and they leave you there stranded on the side of the road. It doesn't matter where you're leaving. you leave. It could be leaving the mall, a restaurant, anywhere. It's my turn. But they left me in downtown Utica at like two o'clock in the morning, two thirty in the morning. But I'm not worried because what we do is we just ride around the block and we beep the horn and we yell obscenities at each other. <laughs> You know, like, hey, loser. Hey, asshole. You know, and this, this, this is what we do for fun. So they'll do it like three or four times. And then eventually they pick you up. And I was like, all right, so I'll just stand on the corner. I'll wait for them to come. They'll scream at me, and I'll get my home fries with cheese. Okay, let's do this. You know? But this time, they didn't come back. And I'm just standing there. And 10 minutes goes by, and 20 minutes goes by. Half hour goes by. I'm like... Now, this is before cell phones. We didn't have cell phones. We're like 90s. We had pagers, you know. I'll page you, man, you know. And it's funny because you're in a really creepy place, but you're kind of worried about your friends. Like, what happened to my friends? You know, like, they wouldn't just leave me. All these emotions that I thought I was going to have in the morning when I'm leaving for college the first time, I'm having them the night before with my friends. Like, I feel like I've, I've abandoned everyone. Like, and they've left me. And I'm like, I'm on my own, and I have to figure this thing out. So... I start walking. It's like a two-and-a-half-mile walk. You know, Blobmob doesn't walk two-and-a-half miles. You crazy? You know? So I start walking. And, you, you know, you start thinking, you know, what's going on? Are they all right? All the, the manhood I had coming out of the strip joint is gone. I'm like a little girl in the street, and I lost my mom, and I don't know what's going on. And so, you know, I'm physically and emotionally drained by the time I get home, you know? I'm really concerned about my friends, I don't know where they are But I'm just drained and I just kind of crawl in the bed I fall asleep, you know, next morning I wake up and I'm still concerned I don't know where these guys are and, But at the same time, I'm leaving for college You know, I'm really nervous about leaving for college And I'm, I'm trying to pack things up And my mother knocks on my door And she's like, uh, Brian I'm like, yeah She said, uh, did you go out with your friends last night? I'm like, yeah I said, like, I don't know where they are. I'm not gonna tell. I went to a strip club, you know. Although she was there in my thoughts, <laughs> she said, uh, "Well, did you happen to find out what happened to them?" I said, like, "No." I said, like, "I'm kind of concerned and like, a little pissed off, to be honest with you." I said, like, "They kind of left me in downtown." I said, like, "I had to walk home last night." Oh, she said, "That's because they're in jail." <laughs> I was like, "They're in jail? What happened?" This is what happened as they left me on the side of the curb to play their joke and go around the block. And they took a detour and a road that is known in Utica for where all the prostitutes hang out. They stand out in the corner. And and this is another thing that males growing up in Utica know. This is where the prostitutes hang out. We made sure that we drove by there quite a bit as teenagers and talked to them, waved to them, and harassed them in whatever way we could. Well, they had gone around the corner, my friend driving, Saw one of these prostitutes. And they're not, you know, they're prostitutes. They're Utica prostitutes, you know. And uh, he saw this prostitute, and he's like, whoa, this is the story I get from them. We don't really know what happened. This is the story they tell everyone. Um, Well, my one friend driving, he pulls over to the side of the road, and he starts talking to her. And from all accounts, this is what happened. He leans forward to the window, he's passenger side, and he asked the woman, how much... For three blowjobs, like he's ordering like cheeseburgers at McDonald's, you right? <laughs> know. And some more talking went on, some more debating went on, and all of a sudden, these guys tell me, police jumped out of cars, they jumped out of the alleyways, uh, out of bushes, you know. They got them repelling off roofs, you know, like it's like it's a Bruce Willis movie for them now, and they take them all out of the car. They arrest all of them. They throw them in the paddy wagon, you know, with all the other Johns, like all the really kind of dirty guys that are, like, down there. I think our mayor was in the back there, too. (laughs) But uh, So so they're all in the paddy wagon. They get brought downtown. The car gets impounded, and they're all in jail. So I'm just like, my mother's telling me this story, and I'm like, what? you got to be kidding me. What is going on? And, of course, what do I have? I have this total relief. And I'm like, um, uh, this is great. I wasn't in the car. Because I guarantee you, I would have been in that car harassing those prostitutes a lot, right along with them. So, you know, the next morning, I pack up the car. And I'm, gonna, I'm planning on calling them when I get home later. Because they weren't even out of jail yet. They were still in jail. So, you know, I'm driving to Albany. And I remember this great relief. I'm on my first day to college. The rest of my life is ahead of me. And my friends are being bailed out in jail by their parents first Prostitution listening, you know? It's just like this crazy, like, world, it's like a Tom Waits song, you know? <laughs> so, you know, so it's just, just total relief. And, and, and this is a great story that we tell each other when we get together still. Like, these are still my brothers. These are the closest people in my life in many ways. And we always tell the story, and it gets better every year, of course, because it's, you know, 15, 16 years old. But I, I always remember feeling that tremendous joy of not being with them. But now... I feel like I've actually missed out on something. Like, I feel like I wasn't there for the whole adventure and I missed out on something great. And so it's hard, but yes, I feel like I missed out on something great in life by not being arrested for soliciting a prostitute. Thank you.
2: say from the age of 19 to about my late 20s that Charles Bukowski was a literal voice in my head when I was 19 and I was living in Athens Georgia I picked up a copy of Charles Bukowski's The Most Beautiful Woman in the World everything I read just had an impact of like a fist and the funniest joke I'd ever heard from the saddest man on the planet who again was just like might be horrible, might be funny, but whatever happens, I'm gonna get drunk. And that's a philosophy. I was like, I will get behind that so much. Cut to a few years later when I moved to New York in 2005 and uh, I slept in my car for four days. I found a place and then I found a job and then I found a better job a couple months after that. I met some people at this job that needed somebody to live in their sublet their apartment. So I did, because I was tired of living in the apartment that I had, because bed bugs lose their charm pretty quick. I live with them for a few months until I get fired from the job I had. Then a couple weeks later, my roommates go on vacation, and then I, I'm poor. So I eat some of their food and drink some of their bourbon, hoping to pay them back when they get back. But they only go for two days, so when I'm not home, I come back. I find that they've kicked me out of my apartment, and now I'm suddenly homeless. I've got no resources, uh, I sold that car a while back, and not really any money, I haven't made any kind of friends to speak of that would let me crash at their place, because I'm the kind of guy who gets kicked out of an apartment over bourbon and pasta so, this is kind of terrifying, but then the voice of Bukowski comes into my head, and he's like, well, yeah, kind of a setback, but this is also a chance for you to Shine. Shine yeah this is you know what this is just an adventure uh this is gonna be a bit this is gonna be a story it's something i don't know anybody who's been homeless in new york this is gonna be awesome this is this is fun right here let's fucking do this and so when you think like that there's gonna be no end to the low points and stupid shit you're gonna get into Case in point, first night I walked from my apartment in East Harlem to a Siberia bar in Hell's Kitchen where I was hoping to crash at a bartender friend's. Siberia bar was just like one of the nastiest bars in New York City at the time. It's not there now. I loved it so much. So many filthy things went on there. That's another story. So I get to Siberia bar and it's not my friend, but it's another bartender. He says, after he hears my story, Ah, Jake, that's terrible. Let me me buy you drinks. You figured this out in the morning. He's like, thanks, man. And he does, and it's just me drinking for a little while. This dude walks in, 26 at the time. He looks about like 10, 15 years older than me. And like if Howdy Doody was a serial killer. And he sits next to me, and I got a vent, so I tell him my story. And he says to me, well, you know, kind of looking at me up and down, he's like, that's a terrible story. You know, I live around the corner. Would you like to go back to my place and smoke a bowl? And, you know, it's obvious that I can tell this guy's gay, and I'm not, but indoors is indoors. So I just kind of, like, not say anything, but just give a sure, you know, kind of vibe to him. And we get back to his place. We smoke a bowl that he pulls out of his kitchen cabinet in a corncob pipe, because, of course, after we smoke the bowl and bullshit for a while, he puts it back, and he just kind of offhandedly says... Oh man, all those lines I did earlier have made me real fucking horny. <laughs> I know I've led this guy on, and I'm trying to be nice about it, so I just go, ha, ha, ha. you know, that's funny, dude. I've been eating nothing but ramen for the last two weeks. It's totally killed my sex drive. Without missing a beat, he just says, mm, "You need to eat some protein." Okay. He wanders over to his room. It's like a railroad apartment. And he just sits on the bed, and he starts flipping with a TV remote. Now I realize how great this weed is. I am so high, and I'm having trouble walking, just, like, saying, Hey, dude, so you think I could crash on your couch, and, like, I'll figure out my shit in the morning he's like oh no not looking at me just patting the bed you can sleep right here i'm like still trying to be nice (laughs) man uh, that's okay i can't even sleep next to a woman after i'm done having sex with her i'm weird right and uh by that time i haven't realized that i've walked into his bedroom into the left i suddenly see that on the tv is uh two naked dudes jerking each other off on a patio couch. And I'm like, whoa, hey, man, um, um, this isn't my thing. I'm, I'm I'm, kind of uncomfortable with this. And he's not looking at me still. He's just like, well, what kind of porn do you like? I'm like, dude, I don't want to watch any porn. I'm not up for sex right now. He's just still not looking. Oh, this is the good stuff right here. Uh, what? That's still two dudes fucking. The only difference is there's a woman rubbing herself out next to them. And then he just gets up and just kind of comes towards me. He's like, come on, come to bed with me. I was like, no, I, I don't want to do it. I'm seriously not gay. I guess he didn't hear me, because he just goes, Come on, I want a nut. Yo, what? I want a nut. But I'm still feeling bad, even though this is scary as shit, so I just go, Dude, I'm sorry, I'm not gay, I cannot help you with this. He's like, so, you're really not gay? Really not gay? But you never even let a guy suck your dick? No, nope, let another guy suck my dick. I don't believe that. Yo, why is that so hard to believe? Oh. Well, then you have to go. Uh, okay. And then I leave, and I go around the corner, and uh, the bartender Steve is closing up shop. I go, "Hey, Steve, that guy, what eleven? Yeah, he tried to fuck me. Steve not looking at me, just pulls down the iron gate and says, "Yeah, I figured that." The whole month and a half of being homeless was just a series of little things you'd, nobody who's not homeless thinks about like i'm walking next to the fanciest mcdonald's i've ever seen on the upper east side one day and i look in the trash can outside and inside is a unwrapped cheeseburger i've never seen anything glow so much in my life i basically kind of just like hold it up like an indiana jones artifact just i'm so happy i'm literally skipping down the rest of the block with my trash burger in victory also, one of the nights when you're sitting and trying to collect your thoughts, it's always something in this city that will just bombard you out of either your depression or your nirvana. My thing was one night I was sitting on a boulder in Central Park and wondering what my next move was. I hear a shuffling behind me, and I turn around. Apparently this is a couple strangers trying to figure out a blowjob exchange that apparently isn't going too well, because dude sees me, turns to me, and asks me if I have change for a five. I don't, so I leave, and I go find my friend who works at Siberia Bar, and he lets me crash at the flat above him. It's a dilapidated, kind of abandoned squatter's flat that he shares with a couple of heroin addicts, and that's why when I entered his flat, I was like, Jesus Christ, dude, why does it smell like death in here? And he explained to me that the heroin addicts were doing something called the Irish Cure, which apparently is uh, they, you boil a bunch of water in a gasoline drum and you stick your abscess arms in the water to pop and cauterize the sores. Now, did I leave after hearing that? No, of course not. Indoors is indoors. So I lay on this filthy mattress on the floor and I think about everything that's led up to this point and I also remember what day it is and that's when I can only just chuckle and say to myself, right, happy Easter. Happy Easter. I didn't have a regular bed to sleep in. My sleeping plan, for the most part, was like either hang out in a bar that I knew they were fine with me just not drinking and sitting in till about 4 a.m. And then I'd wander around for a few hours of night, usually the White Castle on 8th Avenue. And then when it was daylight out, I'd walk to Bryant Park and I'd sleep in one of those desk chairs they have there for a few hours and then start all over again. Once, I slept in a cardboard box uh, in Hell's Kitchen a couple times. like People he- would let me crash at their place here and there, but I'm somebody's homeless friend, so they're not going to let me stay any longer than that. And the thing about like the people who like shout at sidewalks and nothing, like their people are there, I discovered the thing is, you know, after staying awake a few nights in a row and just walking around and being completely destitute, you think about the people and the things that brought you to that point. And you can't yell at them because they're usually not there. You have no other resource, but you have to vent. So, you know, when you see some guys point at the sidewalk and says, You're 100% crazy! It's somebody else who he feels responsible for putting him there. There were points where it was just like, Dude, you've... I think you're close to burning all your bridges. There was, you know, points where I thought, Yeah, I'm going to have to break down and maybe call home. You know, my dad, he was kind of against me going up there just because I had no plan to speak of. I had no job lined up. I had no place to really stay. I only had some money saved up, and that was it. I didn't even know how to lease an apartment or anything. I still don't. And the idea of like him being right about me failing at living in New York was not an option. I was gonna deal with. It's like no, 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 no. I will either die on the sidewalk. Or I will make it. I will not go back home. New York was just such an amazing city. I was like, I I refuse to fucking leave this city. This city is better while I'm homeless than Georgia is when I'm indoors and employed. I was just like, no, no, no. You will get through this. This is just uh, another story. You just gotta ride through it. But that's not even the low point. The lowest point is one day when I had finally. Scored a job and I was waiting to be put on the schedule I had gone to my old job The first job I'd gotten in New York Dallas BBQ at 23rd and 8th And I'd heard somewhere that they were opening up The restaurant in Times Square And I just kept going back to my old manager Hey man, you know, if you guys need people over there I'm your man, let me know And so I just kept hounding him and hounding him Until I finally got hired again It was a nice day I was in Midtown by like 7th and 21st Street And I'm just standing on the corner, I've got no money. It's like, what is my move for today? I look around the corner and I see that there's this giant cardboard box full of styrofoam peanuts. And I get an idea, and I take the box around the corner where everybody's walking around and past, and I tear off the back flap, and I take a couple of Sharpies I have on me, because anything that I can claim as property at this point is mine and will never leave my sight. That's why homeless people have bags of shit around them all the time, and you wonder, what do you have that for? That's why. So I take the Sharpies, and I scrawl something on the flap, and then I get a paper cup from a vendor, and then I get in the cardboard box. I squat down on my knees and I put the paper cup in front on the other front flap and I hold a sign above my head and the sign says, Stupid Guy Needs Change. I sit there for about two hours and make twelve bucks. That's almost minimum wage in 2006. It was great. I was proud of myself. Even at one point there was this middle-aged Long Island dude all clad in denim just comes up to me, stares for a second and says, Huh. You're so stupid. Dude, look at you. You're so fucking stupid. And he, he walks away for like 30 seconds, but then I see him come back and he hands me a dollar. And he just tells me, I don't know who's fucking stupider, me or you. I say thanks, but I just think to myself, well, I got your dollar and is not a word. So again, I do this for two hours. would have done it longer except a police van suddenly pulls up in front of me. And he walks up to me, He doesn't really say anything, he just folds his arms disapprovingly, looks down, a little confused and just asks me, so what, did you lose a bet? And I didn't let go of the sign at all or raise up, I just go, no, I just got kicked out of my apartment. And he's like, well, you can't stay here, so take your box and take your sign and go across the street. So what, it's legal across the street? He says, no, it's just a different precinct. So, fuck it. I take the box across the street, but you know, I've already got 12 bucks. That's a good day's wages in homeless idiot land. So I decide now I'm going to get a couple dollar cheeseburgers and then treat myself. That's how I end up with a Foster's can in my hand, my second, inside an 8th Avenue jack off booth. For the uninitiated, a jack off booth is booths inside adult entertainment stores that you can go into. There's a TV screen, put a couple dollars in a slot, watch some porn. Rub one out And then leave I discovered these When I was living in Hell's Kitchen Because I didn't have a computer And I'm a huge porn addict I started watching these But I have this really repressive Kind of serial killer nature brain So like I would go in the booth But I wouldn't jack off Because I thought that was wrong My brain was like I like the naughty thing, but the naughty thing's naughty. Mother! Mother! So, you know, the thing I did was I would go to the booths, I'd watch the porn, maybe kind of rub myself a little through my pants, and then i just immediately, because I lived around the corner, go back to my place and just jerk off there. You know, I'm just like, don't forget, don't forget. So, like, cut back to where I am now, drunk in the 8th Avenue jackoff booth. And I'm just, like, sitting there kind of just like, well, yeah, this is kind of low, but you know what? I'm already here, and I'm going to treat myself. But I'm trying to like salvage some kind of dignity in this situation, so I'm just like, I'm still not gonna jerk off in the booth, but I'm just really gonna rub myself through my jeans. Yeah, that'll that'll do the trick. But the thing is, I haven't been, you know, jerking off like I normally have through this entire month and a half because, you know, again, you know, I live outdoors and you can only go to Barnes and Noble so many times. So it's been building up and building up inside me. So apparently it only takes a few rubs against my jeans before oh shit, oh god. oh oh, oh god I'm gonna come oh oh, oh, this is gonna happen and like I try to think fast I I stand up and I I try to like loosen you know pull my pant leg away from my leg because they're pretty loose because I've been walking around in them this whole time thinking I could just like make a load splash on the floor through the leg but unfortunately my socks are really loose too at this and my aim is off so the load goes straight down into my sock I believe I'm the only guy I know who's ever jerked off into a sock that's still on his foot. And, you know, it's going down my foot, and it's getting inside my show, And uh, the voice, you know, comes back in my head. And he asks me, you having fun? And I had to say no, I wasn't. Ultimately, it was worth it because, you know, it's one of my regular stories to tell, and I got so many glimpses into different parts of life that I'd never normally see. A lot of empathy for some arenas and less patience with others. I went back to my old landlord when I first got to New York because he was like this slumlord named Tony. He was a total cartoon. He's like fat Italian and a wife beater. Actually beat his wife when he wasn't banging his other teenage girlfriend and doing heroin. Yeah, it was the kind of apartments that Bukowski used to live in in his writing. So I was like equally proud that I I got through that. I was like, all right, well, I guess it's back to the bedbugs. But hey, indoors is indoors. (laughs) ¶¶
0: This is Risk. This is the war on drugs behind me now. Uh, Risk music intern Jason Josephs introduced me to this song. And we just heard from Jake Hart, who is a storyteller around Bat Town. He hosts a show called The Dump at the Creek in the Cave in Queens, one of my very favorite comedy theaters in New York City. Our final story today comes from our recent trip to Washington, D.C. Got a lot of wonderful stories that night also. So here now is Kathy Smith with a story we call Grave Danger.
3: I am exactly who you think I am when you look at me. (laughs) But I used to be really into
4: drugs.
3: (laughs) So, all of my friends now, you know, they spent their 20s like getting their PhDs and going to work for the feds, and now they're retiring, you know, with pensions and second homes. And I did not, and I am not. Because when I was in my 20s, which was in the early 70s, might as well admit it, I hung out with a group that was just really into recreational drugs. I mean, we weren't addicted to anything. You know, we didn't like shoot up, you know, crap didn't even exist yet. Who knew there would be something called ecstasy? But, you know, we just really liked to smoke a lot of pot. And if we really wanted to have, you know, a full mind-body experience, we would drop acid. So, if you've never dropped acid, um, there are like two kinds of acid trips. There are good acid trips and there are bad acid trips. Now, a good acid trip is so awesome. You know so psychedelic like I remember this one time dropping acid and I laid on my bed and I like looked at the headboard of my bed and I was watching the wood grain just like undulate and I thought wow you know it does this all the time I'm just not aware enough of it to notice you know this is awesome everything was just so intense And I went to the beach one time, you know, and I'm standing on the shore And just watching the waves come in and go out And like for hours I am staring at the surf And thinking that there's a message in the bubbles You know, just like looking for the message, you know So that's what like a fun acid trip is like It was just so much fun A bad acid trip, not so much fun So when you have a bad acid trip, it's not because the acid is bad. It's because you're in a situation that suddenly has gone bad. So for instance, this one time, I'm with my two friends, Greg and David, and we drop acid and we're in this house. And they were friends with benefits before there was ever the term friends with benefits. So they're kind of noodling you know, on the couch and stuff and necking and stuff. And I'm starting to feel really like the third wheel And like, I really don't belong here. And I start to get really sad. Finally, it becomes obvious to them that I'm like really sad. And David says to me, you know, we've been looking forward to this for a long time. And if you are going to be a downer, I really think you should go somewhere else. So I call my friend Sandra, and I'm like, you know what, I'm having a bad trip. I'm like crying, you know, I'm like hysterical. I'm like, you know, when you have a bad trip, it's I mean, people would throw themselves out windows when they were having a bad acid trip. I mean, that's what happened, and I did not want that to happen to me. So she came, and she took me away, and she talked me down. So I tell you all this so that you will know the utter stupidity inherent in the story I'm about to tell you. So I'm a senior at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, and I hate school. I am so sick of school. I just can't stand it. So I say to my housemate, why don't we hitchhike out to my friend Cherry's farm? and we'll just hang out there for the day. And she says, "Well, I don't know. I have all the schoolwork to do." And I say, yeah, but I have a tab of acid and like we could share it and it'll be really fun." She says, "Well, okay. So I take this little tiny square of construction paper that's got the little dot of LSD in the middle of it, and I cut it in half, and we each put it on our tongues. It's not a lot of acid, so it's not going to last like 10 hours or anything, but by the time we've put on like our boots and our coats and our scarves and our gloves, and everything, it's so cold in Pittsburgh on a March day, you know, and finally we walk outside, and it's like the sky is brilliant blue, and the trees are these black silhouettes against the sky, and we are just like, oh my God, we're walking down the street, we're like smiling at people, you know, and they're like looking askance at us, and we finally get down to the street where I think we're going to be able to get picked up. And nobody's picking us up because it's like 11 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. So finally, we walk about six blocks. We go down to this intersection that's really big. There's like five streets that come together. And we put out our thumbs. And in just a little while, there's this white van that comes down from the other direction and makes a U-turn and pulls right in front of us. Now, if we hadn't been altered... It might have occurred to us that it's probably a little strange that someone who's not going in your direction decides to turn around and pick you up. But we were altered, you know, so the van pulls up, and I'm already cold, right? I don't like to be cold. And there are these two young black men in the front of the van. They're like our age, you know, they look like the guys in my neighborhood. And so the side door opens and I jump in. My friend Cindy, who is Jewish and from Long Island, hesitates. But then she sees that I'm already in, so she gets in. And the side door closes. And right away, we realize all is not well here. (laughs) First of all, there are no seats in the back of this van. We are sitting on overturned milk crates. All of the windows in the van are painted black. And there's a piece of plywood that's been erected behind the front seat of the van so that the only light coming into the van is on either side of this plywood, like about an inch and a half of light. It is really dark in there, and I'm starting to, like, feel a little freaked out. But then I decide, you know what, it's up to me, you know, it's up to me to just make sure this is going to be really fine. So I'm looking through this little crack, you know, on the side, where this, you know, bright sunshine is coming in, and I say to the driver, you know, it would be really great if you could just take us to the entrance to the Highland Park Bridge, because I'm sure you don't want to go over the river and we'll just take it from there. And he says, okay. And then I try to chat him up. I'm like, hey, you know, I went to Peabody High School. Where did you go? He says, Homewood Brushton. Oh my God, these guys used to kick our asses all the time in football. Yeah, I know. So, you know, I'm trying to be like friendly with them and They're not being like real talkative, but I don't really get like a hostile vibe either, you know? And then I hear Cindy say, I really don't appreciate that and I certainly hope you will not say anything like that again. And I'm like, these guys haven't said anything. And so I turn around and I realize there are three more guys in the back of the van. Now it's really closing in on me, you know? But I'm determined, like this is not gonna go downhill, right? I am gonna have the situation in hand. So I'm looking out through my little crack there, you know, at the front window, and he's going exactly where I asked him to go. He's going down Negley Avenue through Highland Park. He gets to the Highland Park Bridge, and he passes it by. And I say, listen, it would be really great if you would just let us off right here. You know, that would be just great. And he says, I need to make a U-turn. And I say, okay. So he goes down to the next traffic light, and he turns left, but instead of making a U-turn, he makes a left up this really steep hill. And I know that at the top of this hill is a cemetery and a VA hospital, and I don't want to be at either of these places with these guys. So he's going up the hill, and he makes a left turn and ends up on this one-block-long dead end street. And he is pissed. This is not where he wants to be. So he's like, got to do a three point turn in this really long white van, right? So he's like pulling back and pulling up and pulling back. And the back doors of the van like pop open. And we are so shocked. We do not get out. So, you know, the guys in the back pull the door shut. And he, like, pulls up, and he backs up again really hard, and the doors fly open again, and we jump out. And we're standing out in the sunshine, and we're like, oh, my God, that was so weird. Like, oh, holy cow, like, I'm so glad we're out of there, and we're hugging one another, we're laughing really nervously, you know. And then we realize the van has not gone anywhere.
4: <laughs>
3: the van is still right in front of us. There's no other way off the street, like to the left of us is this hill which is like all dirt and to the right of us is this little row of townhouses which is like down about six steps so that they're actually lower than the street and there's no sidewalk. So Cindy and I are standing there and we're waiting for the van to go and the van doesn't go. Finally the side door opens and one of these guys leans out and holds out my gloves and he says You forgot your gloves and I say keep them I don't need the gloves it's fine he says no it's really I'll just put them right here on the floor and you can just come up and get them I look at Cindy and she's like no and I say you know what they're my only gloves (laughs) you know like I'm cold and she says okay well we'll go up there together so we walk up to the van and I bend down to pick up my gloves and when I look up there is a gun right in my face. And he says, get back in the van. And I go, ah! And I throw myself back, and I knock into the ground, and I turn around, and I start to run. And I am, like, jumping over hedges, and I'm jumping over railings, and I, all I can think of is this thing a friend of mine once said. If somebody comes at you with a knife, you should run, because chances are they don't know how to throw it. But if somebody comes at you with a gun, you should attack because they can get you coming or going. And I'm running, I'm thinking, coming or going, you can get me coming or going, you can get me coming or going. And I'm jumping over these hedges, and I'm running down these steps to these townhouses, and I start banging on the storm doors, like I'm banging and banging and banging. Finally, I completely bust the glass in the storm door. And the inside door opens, and there's a slightly older black man who looks like he's been sitting in his, like, Barca lounger watching TV. He's got a T-shirt on, pants with, like, you know, no belt, no shoes and socks. And he goes, what the hell? I say, there are these guys. They're up in the van. They've got a gun. They've got my friend, Cindy, Cindy, Cindy. And he looks up. He leans his head out. And I see him make eye contact with this young man in the van, like, up the hill. And he goes, get the hell out of my neighborhood. And they do. The van door closes and they take off. I don't know where Cindy is. I can hear her voice Kathy, Kathy. And it sounds like it's receding. And I'm screaming. I mean, I'm like screaming her name. And all of a sudden she comes running around from the back of these townhouses. And again, it's like, oh, we're crying, we're hugging. Oh my God, that was so scary. Holy cow. And our hero is like, who's going to fix my window? So I wish I could tell you that I never hitchhiked again, but we hitchhiked right off that hill, (laughs) right over to the farm. And I wish I could tell you that I had never done another drug again, but I was stupid for way longer than I needed to be. But I'm really happy to be able to tell you that who you think you see when you look at me right now is exactly who I am. Thank you.
4: Better go, Bill, oh, you better know My dress is torn, you have a black eye You got from a giving kind But your coat is big and I am warm I'll ask if I can walk you on home like the gravel under our shoes The scatters and clarify Simple as something of a mystery No longer making sense to me Like some mistake to hide, you're the reason, so I buy it's true.
0: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Mr. Little Jeans behind me now. And let me let you know where the next Big Risk Live shows are happening. We are in London, England on July 4th, my friends. And then on July 22nd, we're in Chicago, Illinois. Come out to see us on the 22nd, Chicago. Then on July 24th, we're back in our regular spots at the Pit in New York City and Nerd Melt in Los Angeles. And remember, you can always find out more about where Risk is happening live next at risk slash tour. Another thing to remember is that we teach storytelling at the storystudio.org. We have done some remarkable. corporate workshops recently. It's something else to walk into a room of investment bankers who it looks like it's going to be drawing blood out of a stone, but everyone is laughing and in tears within a few hours. It's a joy to do. So we do that. We do our corporate workshops. We do one-on-one training over Skype or in person in New York and Los Angeles. We have workshops you can attend in person. There's so much to find out at thestorystudio.org. One last thing. Risk is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of podcasts. And just like all the other podcasts on the Maximum Fun Network, we're listener-supported. We dearly rely on the help of those who love what we do. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member And be sure to earmark what you send for risk. Now I'm going to wrap up this episode here and prepare to go to London, England for our first show overseas. And with that, I guess I should just say, folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
2: Toes were like cracked and yellow at this point. If you like punctured them, fluid came out. At that point, I started narrating what was happening in the bathtub, like I was a character from Sin City. Like I was like, I looked at my toe. It was yellow, cracked, and oozing. Looked like I just foot fucked a dead whore in Newark. So that was fun.